The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, sports fans. You're about to hear my chat with the legendary director and creator, Alan Arkish. He's responsible for Rock and Roll High School. He's responsible for Get Crazy and so much more, as you'll hear. You know, music videos for Elvis Costello, Bat Medler, and Mick Jagger, and Dawkins, but the list goes on and on. Too many credits to list here because we'd be here all day. And we get to a lot of those credits in the proper intro coming up after the theme song. So now, before the theme song, I want to tell you about Patreon.com slash Craig and Friends. Head on over there now while you're listening and sign up for the tier that looks best for you. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of movie club stuff coming up. Speaking of movie club, because movie club Mondays, you know what that means. Every Monday, a movie club this upcoming Monday, December 4th, brings us the Craig and Friends Movie Club for the outrageous Ken Russell classic. I guess outrageous and Ken Russell might be redundant. Anyhow, the Ken Russell classic, Crimes of Passion, featuring my guest, the wonderful, the talented, the delightful Gala Avery. Speaking of Gala, you're more than likely you're already following the Gala show, but if you're not, after this episode, listen to the brand new episode because guess who's on it? None other than myself. And hey, while you're doing all that, why don't you make the most of it and give this show and that show a rating. And of course, a five-star rating is the most sophisticated rating, and you, dear listener, are a true sophisticate. So now, without any further ado, it's my chat with the one, the only, the legendary, and very friendly, Alan Arkish. Dear listeners, my guest on this episode enrolled the Ramones in Rock and Roll High School, managed to get Lou Reed to be charming on camera, executive produced and or directed some of your favorite television shows, got dosed backstage at the Fillmore East with the Grateful Dead, and directed hot music videos for the likes of Dawkins, Bette Midler, and Elvis Costello, while also having the great misfortune of having to work with Chevy Chase. Let your heartbeats ping, because it's time to get crazy with the one, the only, the Alan Arkush. Welcome, Alan. Hi, thank you. Wow, that's quite a uh, that's quite an intro. I feel like I'm, I'm on AM radio now in the '60s. Well, I wanted to have a little bit of that, a little bit of screaming Steve uh, for oh, you. Yes, screaming Steve. Yeah, Don, Don Steele. Yeah, and Don Steele, right? Uh, for those who don't know, he was an actual DJ in the LA area. Is that right? Yes, he was a tremendously popular DJ. Yeah, uh, and I forgot. I guess he was in Grand. Grand Theft Auto first, 
And then after Grand Theft Auto, he had a big part in that. Uh, I used him in rock and roll high school. And he had a show every day, you know. Because I remember as a kid, first seeing him in Rock and Roll High School, which I think I told you when I got to see it at the New Beverly that I saw when I was so young, I thought they were a band manufactured for the film, like the Monkees. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then discovered to my delight that they were a real band. You could get all their records. That guy, Don Steele, I, it was that sort of the Corman faces that you would start to see in films. You know, like, yeah. uh, oh, wow, that guy's in this and that guy's in this too. Like Paul Bartel, Mary Warrenov, etc. Oh, Dick Miller. I mean, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, because in so many of the films, going back and forth, you know, and so forth, and uh, yeah, Paul and Mary, and um, I'm trying to think who else. I'm sure as I watch it, I could point out, you know, people. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. It was fun putting those pieces together too, especially pre-internet. Yeah, and then you start to learn, oh, what New World Pictures is, and then oh, Roger Corman. Okay, his name is on all these things. And then right. you start to see the connection. And of course, uh, for listeners not familiar, uh, you got your start with Roger Corman. Yeah, that's right. I um, I started out as an assistant editor in the trailer department, earning about $50 a week. And that was in the spring of 74. So um, Roger Corman then was starting... It was about a year or two into New World Pictures, and it was starting to find its footing. It was an independent distributor of indie films and indie films in those days are different than they were now indie films now are pretty classy uh films that the regular studios won't touch and offer a place for all kinds of filmmakers to cover topics that um uh, they they see no point in making movies about uh indie films then it would be more accurate to call them outlaw movies. Right. They, they were the movies that played in the drive-ins and the downtown theaters and on the double bills. And they were all made very cheaply. And at some point in the 60s, when after Roger had hired his first film student that had worked out so well, and that was Francis Coppola, he uh, decided film students were a good source of cheap labor and enthusiasm. And that's how he built New World Pictures uh, with all these film students. And then when I joined, it was just that difference of 10 years between us and maybe Copa, or just that fact that we grew up watching Roger's movies. Right. But we had a sense of what he wanted. So when we cut trailers, it was a great shortcut for him to have people understood uh, what he was going for. Plus, at that point, he was distributing foreign movies. And here we were just out of film school and huge film buffs. So if he was distributing a Truffaut movie or a Bergman movie or a Fellini film, he didn't have to explain to us who these people were. We just had to find the cross section, the meaning of what these filmmakers stood for and how Roger was going to distribute them and what theater so that we could take the style of trailer we did for uh, Big Bad Mama <laughs> and <laughs> right. put it on Amarcord. <laughs> so basically, if there's nudity, so much easier than to make the trailer because that was a featured well, thing. Yes, of those there days. was a lot of that. And the thing about Roger is he let you make any movie you wanted mm-hmm. as long as it was the movie that he wanted. 
And so if you were doing a genre film mm-hmm. of some kind, and they were all genre films, you had to deliver the genre elements big time. And the story or the message, and he really wanted us to do message and, and politics and stuff, um, that you hang it on was your own. So that's interesting. He really did want you to put messages and Oh, God, themes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He was a big admirer of Godard and, and lots of other things. He wasn't a um, guy with a cigar. <laughs> You know, yeah. that was not Roger. Roger's very erudite. He started as an engineer, which gave him a very analytical mind. Mm-hmm. And he was really funny, but he, it was one-to-one. That is, it's his studio. It's his money. It's his distribution. And he's standing next to you at the movieola, the editing machine, telling you to cut four frames off of this. And he's a director. So he he would analyze your footage and um, he could tell you what you had done wrong, what you should have done, and explain to you the mistake you made in terms of just watching it and knowing how you staged it, what time of day it is, and everything. It, it was that doesn't happen anymore, <laughs> right? And also, it's a very rare combination of someone who's very fiscally minded, but also yeah. extremely interested in the art form. Yes, exactly. Which is not really common at studios which i know you had some run-ins with some folks later on which we'll get into but uh i also want to mention before we get there about how he was the second of the mentors it seemed that you worked with the first being bill graham bill graham um when let me see if i could set a context for you i mean um was there about 30 difference 30 years 20 years difference between me and you i think so i'm gonna be 46 next month yeah Okay, so I'm uh, 73. So uh, I'm I am a baby boomer, the classic baby boomer, you know, born in 1948. And um, the 60s came to me when I was 12 or 13. And I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 64. So I was 16 years old. So it hit me at the perfect time. Right. And in those days, there was a generation gap. Right. Your parents thought one way. Right. And you thought another. And because we were privileged and we had access to money, we had grown up in an immature way that our parents didn't have. Right. Because right. they were our parents were came out of the Depression. So we had all these thoughts and stuff and we set ourselves aside. There was a difference in thinking towards Vietnam and towards um, racial racial issues, and then somewhat in the early 70s, women's issues and queer issues came along. Um, so here I am between these worlds where my parents wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and it was a battle for me to go to film school. Okay. I'm just giving you context that in 19... 19- 65 when i spoke to my guidance counselor at school about college he had never heard of film school how many film schools were around at the time four Four. (laughs) okay yeah and one was for documentaries you had sc ucla and nyu had only been in making undergraduate film school for three years wow and so um it just seemed crazy, but it took me almost two years 
to finally get back to go to film school, which is what I wanted to do in New York and be in the East Village at the center of this culture. Yeah. Which I was completely buying into. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it, for me, it went from Beat Generation reading of those poets to Tom Wolfe to obviously Dylan, you know, and sure. the Stones and the Beatles into that whole world of hippies and stuff. So I lived in the East Village when it was not a mall. You know, <laughs> right. It was, mean, it was the epicenter for rock and roll, really, on the East Coast. It was the right? epicenter for rock and roll. And my first super um, uh, stabbed his brother-in-law on the day that I moved in. And then my second super was murdered by people in the building. So it was a, it was a neighborhood and a half. Yeah. Um, and I went to rock and roll shows. You know, I bought tickets and I went to shows, which would now be called classic rock. Okay? Sure. And so, remember, these are people who were uh, maybe a, my age or maybe three years or four years older. And so I saw Iggy. Um, no, I didn't see Iggy then. I saw The Doors mm-hmm. uh, at a nightclub. That, this was their first tour after Light My Fire. You wow, know? yeah. You know? And so I saw all these bands as they were just unfolding in America and there sure. wasn't a system. Nightclubs then too, to give people a little a bit of an idea, weren't kind of like the nightclubs everyone's used to now or modern clubs. Like there would right. be some like old supper clubs, right? That were repurposed. Well, or I think one of the ones that most affected me was a place called the Cafe Agogo mm-hmm. in New York City. It was on Bleecker Street. It was in the basement of a building that had the Bleecker Street Cinema on one end of the block and the Garrick Cinema on the other. Bleecker Street was an art house and ran foreign pictures. The Garrick ran um, a lot of them old Hollywood American movies and things that were now all of a sudden in style or people were interested in Humphrey Bogart and W.C. Fields and so forth. Mm-hmm. And also in the summer of 19... 19- 67 for a month the garrick had frank zappa and the mothers in residency every night right here's who i saw at this little nightclub that didn't serve alcohol but ice cream right <laughs> uh the cafe gogo i saw the paul butterfield blues band which was a seminal group for those who know what you know they really were the crossover into electric blues and, mm-hmm. and opened the door for a lot of people brought up on folk music um the jefferson airplanes first tour the grateful dead's first tour uh, a band called the blues project it was a place where you went and saw bands then it started opening up and people would rent out a movie theater for a one-off you know use that space and bill graham came to town because a movie theater on the east in the east was actually a yiddish theater where the Fillmore East was, was like the Yiddish Broadway okay. of the 20s. There were all these theaters there. Now they were closing down. But the theater that the Fillmore was was called the Lowe's Commodore. And it had been built as a theater theater, you know, with theatrical flies and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so Graham bought it with the thought of maybe we can do concerts that are not dances right because everything before that was in a club or in san francisco was a dance 
it wasn't a theatrical presentation. Mm -hmm. And so when I walked in there as a someone who liked rock music and haven't seen probably at that point, maybe about eight concerts, you mm -hmm. know, um, maybe more. But uh, the first night to see uh, Albert King, blues man. Do you know who Tim Buckley is? Yeah, sort of folky. Yes, um, mm -hmm. and he's the father of Jeff Buckley. Yeah. Uh, and he died. Headliner. He died drowning, right? Right. And Tim Buckley overdosed. Um, the headliner oh, right. yeah. was uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> it was a great show, and it was fantastic. And it was only three blocks from my apartment. Yeah. And so I came back, and I saw the Who there when the Who were dangerous, you know? <laughs> especially to firemen. What? especially to firemen and policemen at the time oh my right? god but i you know that was they were the most exciting band i think yeah I, it just it's just out of sheer excitement you know the kind of they could work up uh energy on the stage the equal to iggy pop would be another one mm -hmm. you know where the stones and a lot of bands do that but with the who and iggy it just seemed like it could go off the road and be killed any second <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, that kind of rock. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's what leaving is to me and fear and piggy in the movie. That's what that represents to me. Right. So I started work on going to this theater, and um, one of my roommates had a job at the theater as an usher. And um, that was who worked there, was the students around the. It was the, the film Maurice was in the middle of NYU, it was next door to NYU. It was like one foot apart from the theater school. And um, all these theater students helped invent live rock and roll concert because they had the technology that they were just learning. Sure. So there would have been no rock and roll sound systems. That's what they invented. Lighting that changed as the song went on. This is none of this existed. Right. You know? Yeah. And so I got a job there and I was working as an usher there. And getting a lot of pressure from my parents to just finish this film school stuff, you know, and start thinking of really what your future is going to be. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, when you're 20 years old and you're caught in that, you know, and you're torn between these things, um, you know, it's anxiety inducing and you don't know where you are in the world. And, you know, um, as soon as you thought that you had a sense of who the world would, was, the Republicans would, nominate richard nixon i'm so fascinated on the big political turnovers of like that era and then when we went into the 80s and sort of lost the liberal stuff from the 70s but in that era it must have seemed like a, a complete uh, storm cloud rolling in after the liberation feeling of the summer of love well, kennedy, etc sure. and kevin kennedy yeah yeah and you know i think our history would have been much different if Lyndon Johnson had not made the mistake of go of continuing in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I think that really damaged the country immeasurably, and because uh, he was really good at politics. But anyway, um, Bill Graham. So I'm working there, and I see these people who, to me, are adults, and I'm 22, 21, and they have responsibility. Mm -hmm. Bill Graham is running this place. And having great joy in it and gets to talk to all these rock bands, you know, <laughs> and present them on stage. 
And how old was Bill at that time? I would say he's early 30s. Mm -hmm. And the lighting designer was a guy by the name of Chip Monk, who had long hair and a big mustache. And then later on, if you've ever seen the Woodstock movie, he's in it a lot. He's the voice of Woodstock. He tells you not to take the brown ass. <laughs> oh, that's Chip. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's Chip. And uh, he wasn't. He designed the lighting at the Fillmore East. And he was the one who brought the concept of theatrical lighting to rock and roll. Before Chip, you turned on the lights and the band played. Right. <laughs> With Chip, when you went from verse to chorus, there was a lighting change. Right. Spotlights would single out soloists. I mean, this stuff sounds so obvious, you know, but that's, and the head of the light show is Josh White, who is about four years older than I am. And he's invented this whole lighting psychedelic thing. So all of a sudden I started seeing that it was possible to be a um, responsible adult. Yeah. Because remember, I, I was a good Jewish kid from the suburbs, you know, mm -hmm. and pursue something that was your dream, you know, that was related to it. And Bill was really nice to me about it because he sensed my energy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was there all the time. And I was once I was on the backstage crew, um, I had a lot of contact with Bill. And so he was always backstage and I would get assigned jobs. And one of the things I did was I used to buy the food and beer and, and soda for the bands. Yeah. And so I used to bring it to their dressing rooms. It wasn't like now there was no contract writer. <laughs> right. No catering. No. Yeah. No. If I could walk to it, it was yours. You know. <laughs> and so it was East Village food. Did anyone have a, a memorably weird requests like oh god can't heat's coming again that bass player always wants okay. this okay <laughs> you want a couple of <laughs> yes <Okay>. please <laughs> all right so ravi shankar mm. the great master indian classical musician and we were so excited that he was going to play there yeah and we had a beautiful rug and flowers and everything and so i went and he had done his sound check and i went to his dressing room and i said mr shankar you know you have like an hour and a half to would you like something to eat he says yes i'm feeling hungry and so i said right over on sixth street there are several indian restaurants i could pick something up for you and he just looked at me he says tell me is ratner's still next door now that is a jewish dairy restaurant okay okay yeah kosher restaurant it's been there for 50 60 years he says i would love one of those terrific ratner's cheese danish <laughs> <laughs> so i went there um when cocaine became a thing in like 1970 mm -hmm. um a lot of bands um i don't want to well a lot of bands would do a lot of coke and never eat the food that i brought them and once we figured this out we would get the food that we wanted perfect you know, yeah, Buy yeah. It for the band, the band would not touch it, and we would take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been to some parties in LA where I'm like, "Oh, no one's good. this cake is all mine. If I want this, yeah, this is it." Exactly. <laughs> and do you know who the Incredible String Band are? I do. I know of them. Yeah, I don't know them okay. that well. They were, they were like, if Druids got signed to Electra Records, <laughs> that's who they would. Be. Which was possible in that era. Yes. And um, Joe, oh, God, a famous producer in England. Um, Joe Smith? 
No, it'll come to me. He sure. signed um, Fairport Convention. And, oh, and Nick Drake, right? Yes, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he signed Incredible String Band and he produced their record and they came there and we loved them. They were just so sweet. And what would you guys like, you know? And they said, well, can, can we have some mead? <laughs> <laughs> how medieval I, of them. I said, well, how about this? I'll get you some dark beer and some honey and you can make your own mead. <laughs> <laughs> did they do it did they go through with it no no but uh <laughs> man that was starving when they got there as well late sound check and everything and yeah their sound check was so phenomenal and we had never heard them and never heard of them mm -hmm. and i went and i said you guys are starving because they were like four hours late which is a whole other story and um uh, how about I go and get you like some uh, deli sandwiches, you know, because we yeah. have great deli food nearby. I'll get you pastrami sandwiches. And they had never had deli food. Oh, wow. They were Southern. And they had, as I would, as with all friends, they were truly a goyish rock band, all right? <laughs> and they had never heard of pastrami. Mm-hmm. So I went and I got the Almond Brothers band, uh, a whole bunch of pastrami <laughs> sandwiches from Katz's. And every time they came back to the Phil Maurice, that's what they wanted, pastrami sandwiches. It's very sweet and also a nice story involving the almonds that uh, they were hungry, If referring yes. back to your earlier story. <laughs> <laughs> and so Bill lent me the theater for my student film. Wow. And the example of his extremely hard work and his passion about what he did truly inspired me. And I was lucky to be there and around all these people who were about my age. Right. So in two examples of my life, the Fillmore East and then Corman, everyone was about the same age and had the same obsession with what they were doing. Nothing really uh, beats that, right? It, there's a certain th amount of energy that it combines when there's a lot of people around who have the same yes. focus. And so imagine, you know, you yourself was very, very knowledgeable about music. And so when a band would, you know, we heard there was a band coming had called the new Yardbirds. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so all of us were Yardbirds fans and, you know, and Jimmy Page was going to be in this band. And then they changed the name to the Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and so the excitement of all of us being rock fans and knowing who Jimmy Page was, you know, yeah. and, and that, that excitement, that fandom, you know, sometimes on a Friday, I remember us going to my apartment and sitting there trying to get through at least one, the first and only record of Mata Hoople that we had to see what they were about. You know, things like that. <laughs> it's amazing all the bands that you must have discovered that, you know, now yeah. we all know these venerated names, everything. Yeah. And, and that's all served you well, too, because you, I mean, obviously your uh, skill with music and film, I think, you know, you're one of the best music film directors uh, that there is. And also you managed to combine music and comedy in a way that I think really exemplifies what rock and roll is all, all about. Yes. Well, some rock and roll. And, and you know, it's interesting you say that. Because that was the challenge with rock and roll high school mm -hmm. to use rock and roll 
and we really wanted a comedic touch. And I think that if we didn't have, if we hadn't had the comedic touch, I don't think the movie would have been a success. I think that the kids taking over the school and blowing it up would have had a very different effect. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And you yeah. know, in all those years of all the terrible things that go on in schools, it has never been referenced. No, it never has. And it never suffered the fate of like over the edge of having the bad reputation. Right. Yeah. That's my close friend, Jonathan Kaplan. We went to film school together. So. It's, a, it's another great film too. Yes, which, uh, absolutely. And I got to see that again at New Beverly too. It, it was great seeing Get Crazy, by the way, on the big screen. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Because I'd had the VHS for ages. Oh, okay. <laughs> Boy, that sure looked terrible. Oh, yeah, it looked just, really bad. Really bad. It was square and it was in mono. I was blown away at the sound in the theater, too, to hear the oh. full surround and everything. It was really great because there's lots of like fun crowd work stuff that you did in it yes. as well. With all the Frisbees flying over yeah. and <laughs> yeah. people yelling from the back and stuff. And uh, yeah, and, and that's one of the things I'm really happy about with the Blu-ray is I went back in and... We went to the original negative and we did a color timing that we could not have done at the time. Mm -hmm. The technical things. Just remember, this is 38 years ago. We right. were you were color timing on film with a chemical reaction. Now you're doing electronically. And I really added the kind of color, which is what I originally wanted to try to get, which is that technicolor from the 50s. Right. Of like the Jerry Lewis movies and the girl can't help it. And the Frank Tashlin comedies and the mm -hmm. Doris Day movies. And also I did a lot of stuff where I was able to tweak it and add the color I wanted and make certain scenes darker, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, the scene where they go in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, and there's the uh, shark going through and all oh, that. Stuff. Yeah. That's the best. The, 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 yeah, the, the uh, terrible men's room. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, because we had all this electricity and it was a real men's room, we just sealed off the bottom with um, um, plastic and taped yeah. it, you know, and then filled it up with water. We couldn't have any, obviously, any lights with a cable <laughs> yeah. that was on the floor. Everything right. had to come from above. And mm -hmm. with the schedule we had, we had one central light and then I think one light for the light the corner. Um, and so it was all right looking you know it yeah. was efficient yeah it did the trick but when i looked at it for the you know the color correct i thought it's never been as moody as i wanted it to be <laughs> yeah. if we had built it i would have made it more of a hellhole you know more like cbgb's bathroom <laughs> you know? right yeah and so what i did was i turned the overall color down you know brightness down and tinted it green Mm -hmm. so it's actually the water looks really green <laughs> <laughs> now that was the bathroom of the wiltern right yes every every <laughs> single thing in the movie was shot at the wiltern except um except for the scene in the cemetery that was the only thing that we everything the car chases everything was done within blocks of the wiltern the only way we could afford to do the film was to never um move trucks never have to have a full rank of teamsters except for keep the vehicles parked so yeah and and the movie's kind of your tribute to the film already east right oh yes oh beyond a doubt it has the bill graham type figure with alan 
Garfield right. or, or Gorwitz? I always Gorwitz. forget. And, and the thing about that is it's not Bill because the people who gave us the money to make the film did not want the kind of film that we wanted to make originally. Mm-hmm. And even though we did their request and we brought it into the early 80s and so forth, they wanted something more crass. And they wanted the Bill character to be like them. Oh, you know? yeah. Greedy motherfuckers. You know? <laughs> and have that battle of a monetary battle, which was never in any scripts, you know? Right. And so that was some of the changes. So we couldn't have the father figure of bill i mean and also alan wasn't necessarily the right person for that who would you have cast as the bill graham oh remember in law and order jerry orbach oh the- yeah he would have amazing yeah the same kind of face that the, the song and dance man and he <laughs> looked like bill yeah wow that's a that's a fa- fabulous movie that never got made has there <laughs> ever, ever been a really great documentary on bill graham um there's been parts short ones Okay. There's been short ones in various things. Um, oh, there was a series about the great concert halls and so forth, but uh, mm-hmm. no. Oh, that's a shame. Well, hopefully sometime yeah, in the future. Yeah, well, listen, I have tons of material. I'd love to do a movie about the Fillmore East, but from a couple different points of view. Mm-hmm. One being what it was like to live in the East Village during that period and go to film school, and we haven't even touched on what NYU was like then. <laughs> uh, and also to t- talk about all the things of rock that were invented there. Right. Yeah. And it was a pivotal place and it was only open for not that three long, years, right? Three years from uh, wow. February of 68 till June of 71. What was the main reason for Graham closing the Fillmore East? Um, it reached a point where bands were starting to make gigantic money. And um, all you know, all the record companies had rethought, and now were functioning. Um, the music business was driving the culture, and there was music had crossed over everywhere. And FM was dominant, and so why should the Doors play the Fillmore East again when they could fill, you know, um, hockey arena or yes, something exactly, you yeah. know, and. Um, why should these bands do multiple shows at the Fillmore if you were that kind of band? You right, know? right. You know, and, uh, you know, Robbie Robertson and the band turned down the Fillmore the second time back. They didn't wow. want to play that. They wanted to play uh, a place to make three times as much money. It was only the Grateful Dead always came back and the Jefferson Airplane and, you know, the Who and all these bands because they liked the fact there's only 2,700 seats. Sure. It's, um, how to describe it to people listening. Um, you go to a concert now and, um, everyone's got their cell phone up. Okay. And they're communicating and they're taking pictures and they're sending texts. And that's part of the whole experience of it. And everyone on that stage is very sophisticated about what's going on, you know, and they have, gone through marketing and and all these things. And at the Fillmore East, we were so tied into the counterculture and the fact that these bands were discovering who they were and what this music was, that 
if you were the kind of person who went to the late shows, right, that was meant you were a real fan. Okay? <laughs> the early show was okay, but the late show started at 1130 and ended whenever. Right. Because <laughs> there would be multiple bands, too, on every bill, Three right? Bands. Three yeah. bands. Okay. All right. Here's a good example. Okay. Opening act, Miles Davis with the Bitches Brew Band. Yeah. Okay. Second on the bill, the Steve Miller Band. And the headliner is Neil Young and Crazy Horse. That's quite a lineup. And so if you're a kid in the audience and Neil Young starts playing Down by the River, you're not looking at your phone. You are everyone's focused straight ahead because, and Neil is ready for this because that's what he's come to is transcendence. Let me take you someplace you've never been. And that's reflected in the lyrics and reflected in the bands and reflected in what it was like at the Fillmore East. And when you walked out at three or four in the morning, you felt like you'd been somewhere collectively. I do think that uh, people do rob themselves a bit of a lot of things by going to their phone too often. Even oh, yeah. when watching movies and people go, oh, it's okay, I'm still paying yeah. attention. You're not actually, because not only are you not paying attention to it in the moment, you have to readjust when you're going back and forth right. from the mediums. And also the intimacy of a, a space the size of the Fillmore East too plays into that yeah. because at a 15,000 seat arena, even if you didn't have a cell phone or anything, sometimes you're so far back, it, it almost means nothing and you're just watching a screen. And the music was driving the culture. Right. And the movies were driving the culture. And so what the the thing that the music did as uniting the people who had the similar interests is essentially the role that the internet has. As you form groups in the internet that reinforce your worldview or tell you stuff. And, you know, um, a night at the Fillmore East, a late show with, remember Love with Arthur Lee? Sure. Okay. Opening act is Love. Second on the bill is the Allman Brothers Band. <laughs> second on the bill. They're, 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 they're just second. They're the middle band. <laughs> they're the middle band. <laughs> and headliner is the Grateful Dead. Wow. And they played till the sun came up. I was just gonna. I was just doing the uh, calculation in my mind, uh, based on what I know about their set lengths, and I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a long one, right?" Oh, listen, <laughs> you know, we had been. I'm thinking about the Saturday Night Late Show of that weekend is one of the greatest shows ever, um, and so we had all been in the theater since three or four in the afternoon, you know, sure, set up and everything. So now the doors open at five thirty in the morning, and it had snowed, and Beams of light were coming through because in those days you could smoke inside. So you saw those shafts of light and the snow and yeah. 7th Street, 6th Street, all virgin with footsteps. You know, it was a moment, you know, you know, shuffling out with Jerry Garcia and And you became close with Jerry later on, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, we just started having conversations. So you also got dosed at a dead show, right? The night of that, yes. Oh, that was the night. Wow. Now, that's and now, what was it like to actually have to perform your job duties when uh, unknowingly dosed with acid? Well, the thing about working at the Fillmore is everyone's there to party, right? <laughs> Fair enough, and have yeah. a good time. Yeah. And we, as stage crew members, if you were an usher for the late show, the last set, you could sneak to the basement and get high. 
you know, once, once everyone was seat, you didn't have anything to do except watch the show. Yeah. But on the stage crew, it's just like in Get Crazy. There's something every minute. There's a reason that in the movie, you never see Danny Stern, the stage manager, sit down. Not once. <laughs> right. Right? Because that's what it was like. It's so intense. And so you didn't get high because you just couldn't. And um, so this it's just like the scene in the movie. Okay. This really happened. Okay, so um, the Grateful Dead traveled uh, with a sound man by the name of Augustus Owsley. You know this name? I know this name, yes, very well. Yes, the uh, the godfather of acid, right? That is correct. Owsley <laughs> <laughs> invented purple sunshine or sunshine acid or whatever it was called. You know, yeah. And manufactured it basically for the whole West Coast area around San Francisco. And when he traveled with the dead, which was often, mm -hmm. uh, he was in charge of their sound system. He'd bring it with him. And all the roadies and all of them had little Visine bottles uh -huh. full of, you know, diluted acid. And so um, when they were in town, you had to watch that you put down a soda or something <laughs> to keep your eye on it. And if they dosed the soda, they might crimp it with their nail, you know, so that you would know. And that particular weekend, Osley was in rare form because Thursday, it was three nights. Thursday night, I'm just going to totally make you drool, okay? You ready? <laughs> yeah, please hit me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's the dead and the same thing and the almonds. And the late show of the almond, of the dead, who shows up but Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> and this is the blues band Fleetwood Mac. Sure, okay? yeah. With, uh, with, with um, um, Peter Green, right? That era? Correct. Yeah. Yes. And Mick Fleetwood and Peter Green and John McVeigh. And now Peter Green comes out on stage with his gorgeous Les Paul. So you got Dwayne Allman, Dickie Betts, Jerry Garcia, and Peter Green, right? Yeah. And two dead drummers, a drummer from the Almonds and Mick Fleetwood. And Osley dosed a bunch of them. <laughs> and Mick Fleetwood is sitting on the floor playing the cowbell. Okay. And so we once that happened, we said, oh shit, this whole weekend is gonna be insane. <laughs> yeah, if that's Thursday, like if look that's out. Thursday, what's Saturday? <laughs> so we were like, nope, we didn't get hit on Friday and Saturday it was like, okay, we gotta get through this because we're gonna have to load everybody out. Oh right. Right. You know? And so um, early in the evening, we had a water bottle, just like so I can get crazy, except mm -hmm. glass. Mm -hmm. And I had to change. I was on the stage crew. So I grabbed the water and I didn't, you know, looking around for the roadies, you know, and I saw they had names like Red Dog. Red Dog was over there and Parrish and Herd and and uh, Ramrod. And there don't seem to be pain. And I grab it and I run down the stairs change get a new one and bring it up and put it down and they've all got this look on their face all of a sudden and they dosed the water cooler <laughs> they got down to the basement they planned ahead they planned they, they <laughs> waited till i had left the open cooler you know, yeah yeah the bottom and hit it oh they hit the bottom oh okay yeah right so when i put the water on blammo <laughs> yes and you um, get a cool refreshing drink and suddenly Yep, and uh, we did the best we could. We did really well, you know. But at about, you know, 
three in the morning. <laughs> and the dead to dark star. I don't know if you're an aficionado. Of the, I, I am familiar with the, that, which dark um, star is the transcendent, you know, that's mm -hmm. the idea. Um, I was absolutely sure that the theater itself had risen 15 feet above second Avenue. It's just, <laughs> yeah. And when people ask me, what was the greatest dead show at the Fillmore? I always say that one, but I have no perspective until the dead put it out. Oh, okay. Wow. They recorded yeah. it. Great. And so for you people out there, um, Dick's picks number four. Okay. That's the one. It's got a 35-minute Dark Star. It's called the Feeling Groovy Dark Star. Well, you need 35 minutes to get the building up 15 feet. You know, <laughs> know. the whole block has to go, so. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, um, I listen to it, you know, and I have it. And it truly is one of the best shows, so. That's fantastic yeah, that yeah. there's a document of that, that you can sort of relive well, it in yeah, a way. Yeah, it's a document of almost every dead show. And almost every show at the Fillmore was recorded. Oh, so did Graham record the stuff, or was that okay, down to well, the band? The truth had to come out. I, this is not <laughs> new. Um, there was a a tape recorder in the basement. Good. That was part of the tech crew. Yeah. Now, these are all guys who are at NYU theater students. Oh, I think it froze who, for a second. The, the idea, you know... You shouldn't just have the sound system on the ground. You should hang it above so the audience in the back gets the sound. I mean, these simple ideas, they thought of all of this, and they tweaked the building to make it sound better, to put padding. You know, no one had thought of any of this. Yeah. So they also ran a cable from the mixing desk to the basement on a big TAC tape recorder and recorded every concert. That's great. Well, I mean, we have... A countless uh priceless artifacts because of that that's good i always encourage people if you're gonna if you have an opportunity to bootleg something or just run a tape just do it because you can always delete it no one needs to hear it but you never know and so many wonderful moments in documentaries are from illicit tapes oh, yeah. or things accidentally captured like in the eagles documentary when you hear don felder and glenn fry telling each other they're going to kick each other's ass after the show and all mm -hmm. that stuff i mean no one planned on that no and um you know there was so much music recorded live by record companies. Oh, yeah. Maurice. And now we're in the golden age of all that is being put out because that's record companies need the legacy acts to carry their catalog. And so there's so many live recordings or, you know, um, I collect a lot of rock video concerts and stuff. And, you know, the sound and the picture finally been sunk up or found together, you know. Sure. Way. Yeah, and then you can do your own home stuff too if you happen to have the copy of it and yes. and the video and do a little Final Cut stuff with it. And well, you did a lot of great music videos too. I mean, I I know of three of them. I'm I'm wondering right. if you did more. So you did Dawkin, uh, the Bette Medler, Bette Mick Jagger clip, which I want to ask you about as well. But uh, the uh, Elvis Costello and Daryl Hall duet for right. uh, Only Flame in Town also has one of my favorite underground actresses in it. And I wanted to know about how Ann Carlisle came to be in your video. I had seen, was it called Liquid Sky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw that and I had a huge crush on her. You sure, know? yeah. And so we got her to be in it, you know. She's a lovely person. I, I just taped a movie club with her on Liquid Sky to talk about the, how that came about and everything. And uh, yeah, that was the I, one thing I didn't remember to ask her. Yeah, and so she um, she was a really, really nice person. And I think she went on to uh, teach um, 
children with learning disabilities. She yes. never really pursued a um acting career, but she was so exotic looking. She just seemed perfect for it. Yeah. And I did one with Christine McVie for her solo record. Oh, that love's got a hold on me. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know you directed that. I'm a fan of that video. Yeah. Yeah. So then, but what was happening was that this is 83 and four. So by that time you'd done rock and roll high school and you did heartbeats and then you did get crazy and right. get crazy was sabotaged by the producers. My career was at a stall. It was just nothing, you know. Um, and so a really good friend of mine who had worked on for Corman, Terry Schwartz, was producing commercials and was doing some rock videos. And so I went over and worked with Terry. And so that's how we got those and through her connections, as well as the fact that um, we went to a lot of meetings with nothing came of it. You know, so we had this idea, you know, the movie Night of the Living Dead. Mm, yeah. Now, to me, that is a movie that doesn't look like anybody made it. <laughs> it just happened. That's the kind of look that it has. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like you found it in the basement <laughs> of some old house, you know, off the road. And I want to do a video for Motley Crue that looked like that, where they would be they would be the zombies. That would have been great. And they were no part of that at all. We had the meeting and they said, no, man, we just want to get girls. You know, plus they were, now I realize they're all on heroin, but you know. <laughs> yeah, they might've been like, oh, I have to do some exertion. I'm not capable yes. of that right now. Thank you. So yeah. that, that didn't happen. And then the commercial company had done a, um, a commercial for a banking concern where they had built a miniature part of Los Angeles for it you know mm -hmm. for whatever reasons they were and so now it's sitting there in this warehouse and it's going to be torn up and uh, the go-go's are looking for a video we thought attack of the 50-foot go-go's <laughs> and yeah. they didn't want any part of that you oh, know? that's a shame wouldn't that wouldn't that have been great it really would have been yeah it would have stood out as one of the best of their collections it was like all these meetings and meetings and not getting anywhere, you know, and uh, then because of various reasons, people uh, who were doing the TV series Fame were looking to expand what they were doing. At that point, Fame was in syndication. It was playing on Sundays and on Saturday afternoons, just uh, on local TV stations. They made them for a small amount of money, and that's what they went out but they couldn't get, you know, regular A-list TV directors because they, it was syndication that you got less money. Hmm. Plus, they were stodgy behind the times. They were not reflecting what was going on in certainly MTV. Right. And so someone on there had seen Rock and Roll High School and they called me in for a meeting. And uh, I was not that interested. And so I just spoke my mind you know, mm -hmm. and told them what was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and they hired me for three episodes. And Debbie Allen is another person that I owe a lot to. Mm -hmm. but she was the producer that ran the set. And her ability to get everyone pulling together, you know, yeah. and her protection of her actors and her getting her vision through, you know, and she and I hit it off. Our first Music meaning I had no idea in television that the director doesn't necessarily choose the music. 
you know. <laughs> so I come in for the first meeting and I got all my albums. I've already read the script and let's do this for this and that. But yeah. <laughs> so there's a music number about um are about Las Vegas and a monster devours Las Vegas. And I thought, well, this is like an old Japanese science fiction movie, you know. Mm -hmm. What do I got that has a, a beat to it that would work for that? And I thought of um, Africa Bambata's Planet Rock. Oh, right. Yeah. So I said, how about Africa Bambata's Planet Rock? It's just, I didn't know I wasn't supposed <laughs> to do that. You know, I was supposed <laughs> to listen to what the music supervisors and there we go. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> so we hit it off. We hit it off. And they basically let me run amok. Well, you, you know? brought Lee Ving into the equation, right? Well, Lee Ving in. We did music numbers to uh, Thelonious Monk. We did music numbers to Dylan, to Lou Reed. We did all, anything I could think of, we did. And we staged elaborate music numbers that affected the storyline and so forth. And that's where I got a lot of my chops in directing musicals that involved acting that was paid off years later with The Temptations. Right. But there's a direct line to that. Yeah. Now, I, I unfortunately have not seen The Temptations yet. Uh, is it available on, on home video? Oh, I think so. I think so. It's probably my, the best thing I've ever done. And I heard you say that in another interview, and I was like, I got to get that. And then I felt bad today when I realized I hadn't seen it. So I will. Okay. I, yeah. I will. I'm looking forward to it because I've heard it talked about in, with great reverence on Quest Love's podcast and a few other things. He talked about it? Yeah, definitely. It came up. I can't remember the wow. episode. But if I remember, I'll send you the episode. It has um, had an effect on family life. That is, um, people of that generation who grew up with the Temptations. Um, truly uh, love it and share it with their families. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with so many people, and certainly African-Americans, who tell me about their auntie or their grandma or whatever, you know, and they yeah. all sit around and watch it together. And um, you have not lived a full life till you have walked down the street with Smokey Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. You know? Yeah. Smokey I conceived of my child to track some of my tears. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby, baby, Smokey, you know. Yeah. And that must have been a heady experience in general, just working on the, the whole project, yes, right? It was. It was a very, very difficult shoot. Uh, and it was a very, very difficult story to tell because there's so many people. And even though it's a miniseries of two nights, yeah. there's so many characters in it. Um, to try to find a thread that pulled it through. And I wanted every music number to tell the story, mm -hmm. to continue the, uh, the, the story of the actors onto the stage and have it worked out while they were singing, which meant having to re-record some of these famous Motown tunes, you it's know? A little tricky. Yeah, because you know, when you're watching a video sometimes, whatever they're singing isn't necessarily suitable for the emotions of what the song is you know sure. the story is and so often with rock bios the music happens over there <laughs> you know <laughs> you sit and you watch it there was i wanted you to be in the middle of it right and so that's how i planned it and staged it and um we all ended up really pulling together and uh if i had not had suzanne the pass as my producer, 
who had worked at Motown and had managed these people and had helped discover the Jackson Five. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Suzanne was essentially Barry Gordy's right hand. Yes. And um, she was the executive producer. And I was working with my first AD that I'd been with for like five or 10 years, an African-American woman. And we went out of our way to make sure that we had as many, much representation on the crew as possible. Mm-hmm. For example, it, so we were going to meet with the costume designer, you know, and a really good one, a really good one, Academy nomination, you know. A lot of people were coming out to do this. And she walks in and she's carrying this stack of records with her. And she says, she sits down. I said, so uh, have you read the script? And she says, yes, I'm doing this movie. (laughs) (laughs) She says, these are my parents' records. Every Saturday night, these records went on the record player. My mom was frying fish in the kitchen. All the neighbors brought a casserole and everyone's dancing to the temptations. So, see this costumes you're going to get exactly this so you have to say yes well again this is another scenario where you have a pool of people that are all focused on the same thing and sharing the same energy and the love for the project which isn't always the case right in a lot of things and you've unfortunately had to deal with that on some other projects Mm -hmm. i'm guessing caddyshack too based on what i've heard you say about it and um and i know you don't necessarily like want to talk about it so much but uh it's part of the the history and everything uh and the whether whatever you feel about the and that also makes me wonder as well uh if association that you have with things colors the product more than the product itself so if, for instance with get get crazy yes I, uh did you i'm not sure if i read this or heard it but i thought i got the impression that you had a negative impression of the film because of all the nightmares that happened after yeah it's a it's an interesting psychology to it okay you know i had made the movie and been so involved in it and it seems so normal to me <laughs> sure <Okay. laughs> right away we're in trouble here uh so <laughs> we tested it with the audience and they really rejected a lot of it oh where was they, it tested oh someplace in la you know oh, okay and they didn't like the fact that it had so many craziness of the jokes. They couldn't find a character that they liked. And they really objected to the fact that you could not have a concert with these very different bands. They didn't get that at all. So if you're not on board with that, as is with a lot of movies, you find fault with everything. Yeah. It's something that I find disappointing when people can't get like, oh, this is a movie. So the rules are the rules of this movie. Whatever this movie says goes, that's what goes. Right. And that's what kicking the dog does. (laughs) You know, when you kick the white dog, all of a sudden the one goes, oh, right. And then for those who went, oh, we give them that gift at the end where the white dog chases the guy down the street yeah know? the dog's okay don't worry about yeah, it the yeah dog was always fine also you have uh you have a <clears throat> pardon me you have a guy who's run over multiple times right yeah. and then uh, other things that are completely cartoonish and absurd yeah. so yeah that was the influence again that's the jerry lewis influence and the frank tashlin influence so i had this opinion of it and it wasn't what i'd hoped it would be and it wasn't, and I was much closer to it then, it wasn't the movie that I originally started out to make. 
And the people who were backing it didn't do much to promote it. And before I knew it, they were trying it with this company, that company. I was getting all kinds of stupid notes, which I did not take. And then they said they were releasing the movie and it never came out anywhere. And it opened in New York. I didn't even know about it. And they basically dumped the movie. And so since I saw it in a theater with no people and I had that impression of it, that's what kind of stayed with me is those feelings. And I yeah. had no perspective on it. Um, so over the years, it was more like unfinished business in my life. But I really, it was fine. No one ever saw it. You know, I wish they had seen it, but that was okay. So, but then when it, when Kino bought it, and I really now wanted it to get out there, you know, because I had seen it at the New Beverly with an audience. And this is a, a screening sponsored uh, oh god he's such a great director he's eli great, roth eli roth and um oh he just did the movie about swing in london oh uh one uh edgar wright edgar wright they were like loved the movie and they had the screening and i wasn't going to sit through it but the audience so loved it that i came out of it going i'm whole again I oh get that's it. yeah there's yeah. enough distance that the things that are embarrassing to me are not and so when Kino, this is like eight years ago. So when Kino said, yes, I knew that this was my chance to round out the story. And I had great hopes for that the extras would tell the story that the movie couldn't quite tell. Sure. We talk about how it started. And that's kind of what we did. There was there's many more extras that the company who not Kino, but the company that owns the movie wouldn't let us use. Oh, wow. Um, what were some of those uh, out of curiosity? Were they newly created or archival things? We created. And what it was is, here's the title of one. My life was saved by rock and roll for Lou Reed. Okay. <laughs> and so everybody talks about what rock and roll meant to them. Mm -hmm. And what their favorite concert is and so forth. And they're not a band or throughout it playing instruments that accent at all. And everyone has their favorite rock and roll story. They said, where does this, you know, the battles over. If I hold this up and we're talking and I go, you know, I really love the Stooges and I put it down. In theory, you're supposed to pay for that. Oh, I didn't know you had to pay you for the permission. Well, oh, it wow. depends. If you are the legal department of MGM, yes. If you are anyone else, like Trailers from Hell, which I work for, and you just say fair use, this right. is a contextualization of that. And, and we're not saying we're selling this on the basis of this shot. You know? <laughs> right. And you're not playing the music. You're just referring right. to it. And yeah. so throughout the that thing, everyone's we put up the pictures, and it's, it's just terrific. But the battles to get through it. And at one point... Everyone's talking about rock and roll. Danny Stern says, you know, I really didn't grow up on rock and roll. Yeah. And I said, really? And I said, yeah. He says, I was all about Broadway and show tunes and stuff. I said, yeah. He says, you know, when I was in sixth grade, I was in Fiddler on the Roof. I said, who were you? He says, I was Ted. I said, give me some Ted. Give me some Sunrise <laughs> Sunset. And he sings a little bit of Sunrise Sunset. Oh, wow. And 
You know, and then one of the Nada band says the greatest concert she ever saw was Jimi Hendrix at the Fillmore East on New Year's Eve. And then she starts air guitaring the riff from Who Knows and going, and was like, you can't beat this stuff. But to the battle, so it exists. Yeah. I will. Keep tuned. I will put it out on my Facebook page. Also, I got together the people who originally worked on it, and we're still friends. Okay, the editors. And they're still my close friends, and we work, some of us, some of them worked on Rock and Roll High School, you know, and now they edit all these big movies, you know. Right? Yeah. The Terminator. I mean, he's a real, <laughs> Jumanji, these are real deal editors. And we go to, we see each other all the time. The ding you hear is them texting. <laughs> um, and so we were all pulling together on this and we started doing the interviews. We just shared it, you know, it was a great way. And the attitude, and now you've watched the extras. Oh, yeah. So you see this attitude that everyone has. It's not like they act like the movie was six months ago. Right. It's 38 years ago. Yeah, it clearly we left an indelible mark. On yes, everyone. and we were only together for thirty-seven, you know, days, and that feeling just permeated me. And as much as I could tell of that backstory, and um, I put in there because there was battles over that, but um, it just made it whole for me again. And now getting these reviews, which are terrific, part of it is this. Part of it is the backstory. It's lost and now it's found and everyone likes that. Yeah. But the other thing is that now, unlike in 1983, rock and roll high school is part of the culture. I think I can safely say that. Oh, very, a lot it's, of people. Yeah, it's very much so. Absolutely. Okay. So if you now look at Get Crazy, you see the connection of whatever the style was that I was doing then. And it's of a piece. Yeah. And so you understand the aesthetic of it. So the people who are inclined to like it go, oh, he really meant to do this, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. All of this is on purpose. This guy's actually had a vision. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I mean, even when it was a film you could only get on copies taped off Cinemax or the VHS that I found, yeah. um, you know, there was a determined cult of it. And if you met someone who liked similar kinds of things, eventually you'd get around to be like, hey, have you seen Get Crazy? And yeah. more often than not, they'd be like, yeah, I love that. And then, you know, Electric Larry always comes up. And for those listening yeah. who haven't seen it yet, Electric Larry. That's Osley. That's Osley. Okay. I was wondering, because I heard you re refer to another Coke dealer or something that showed up. It's death. It's death. It's the symbol of death, you know, and because um, that's the allure of drugs. And if you really want to get deep uh, behind the scenes, there's a movie called Death Takes a Holiday mm -hmm. uh, that Mitchell Lyson directed. And the figure of death is a character in it. And to make him look this certain way, they took the actor and they wrapped him in many layers of black gauze. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have a definite shape. And so we used some of that for the idea. Well, it's great. And also the music cue for it, Adrian Ballou's oh, it's killer. track is fantastic. And so for those of you, you who haven't seen it yet, Electric Larry is the supplier of the party favors that help get the show on the road. Right. And then there's a, there's two great 
scenes with, with him. Yeah. Well, the music is by Adrian Ballou, fantastic guitar player, and it's called Big Electric Cat, and it just works big time. You know? You've worked with a lot of difficult personalities, and we don't have to get into Chevy Chase because everyone knows what his problem is or has a good idea anyway. But you also worked with people who could be difficult and maybe they weren't trying to be. Now, I don't know where Lou Reed falls on that spectrum, but Andy Kaufman, a brilliant uh, comedian, from what I know about him, from what I've read, uh, he was very unpredictable and therefore could be difficult. And I was curious about how you approached working with both of them. I think in the case of Heartbeeps, I really booted that. The way that you say someone misses the extra point. Oh, sure. Okay. You know, I um, hubris or whatever it was, or my misunderstanding why I was there. This was your first studio picture, and it was a sort of a love co- love story comedy, right? Between yes, two robots. And it was the producers had done uh, Close Encounters and Taxi Driver and this thing. So here I am being offered this big picture, and who doesn't love the robots in in uh, Star Wars, etc. Right. And I was ill prepared for it. I was not the right director for it. I didn't have that kind of sensibility. I didn't have a love of special effects and special makeup and so forth. And I had this idea that the movie was about the love relationships between them. And so I stressed that. And in a way, I thought it was like a sweet version of a silent movie called seventh heaven i was i don't know where my head was you know but what i should have done was a crazy comedy and let andy have multiple personalities and had them both have real screws loose you know and paced it way up but i was you know i booted it and so i just got it wrong what was i thinking and i got fired from it um and Andy was just a strange person and contrary, et cetera. And as it turns out, whatever gifts that Andy had of mimicry and so forth, I didn't understand them. And so um, he was successful as Latka on uh, Taxi. But I needed someone, I needed all, as if one robot could be all four Marx Brothers for it to succeed. And I didn't see that. And I staged it poorly, and I let the mechanics of it dictate. I was coming out of a a world where everyone was the same age, and now I'm doing a big union picture. Where everything costs more than my last movie did, you know. Sure. So that's not an excuse. It's just a lesson I didn't learn and I didn't adapt to. Well, not necessarily an excuse, but I think you know the context is everything, as is always, and you know that's quite a thing to be dropped into, and also who's to say who made the decision that uh, you know that wasn't the right one casting andy kaufman in a role that on paper probably wasn't zany yeah. you know what i mean yeah so it was a bunch of things where i was not like at new world where i was totally comfortable in a rock and roll high school set i knew exactly what we should be doing well and also with a um a non-hostile environment or co-workers i don't know what the scene was but you know it was all right you know it was just wasn't chemistry between us and so forth but um you know getting into fame what that did for me is it taught me a lot about it allowed me to direct a lot and oh hi george come on up there oh hi george and so cute cat um, 
He's a beautiful guy. What breed is or type is that? I have no idea, but he's he looks Siamese, but he's not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and that was great for me. I was directing all the time on a schedule, mm -hmm. um, and I was working with people who had tremendous amount of experience to the point where that crew was like as old as my grandparents. You know, they were not getting the A-team, you know. <laughs> and I brought my sensibilities and ideas to it, and I was appreciative for it. And my Asian at the time was so, I didn't, it just started with her because I didn't know I had a TV agent. This is her first TV show she got me. She says, you know, this is going really, really well. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. Is there any other TV shows you would ever want to do? Because we're getting offers. And I said, I don't just want to do a show. It has to be a show that I really like, that I really watch. She goes, okay, what do you watch? I said, well, I love St. Elsewhere. She says, let me see what I can do. She comes back. She says, they don't want to take you right away, but if you come and observe and something opens up. So, like, took eight months, you know. But mm -hmm. then I did St. Elsewhere, and now I get hit it off with them because my sensibility the dark humor I can do fit the show. And I am a very quick study on visual styles. I can't mimic any voices, but I can do any TV show and explain it to you how they do it. Okay. And I fit right into their style and I learned a lot. So all of a sudden for the next several years, I was going from one show to another. And because of my sense of, I just don't want to work on any show. I wisely chose well, and each of these shows had a different visual style. And I learned those styles. So on St. Elsewhere, it's soft, I'm just gonna say it's soft light, handheld, stories walk in and out of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Moonlighting is old fashioned Hollywood glamour lighting, long lenses, you know, and and the um, L.A. Law was rigid lensing, you know, and, yeah. and so every show I learned that technique. So when it came time for me to direct my own pilots, I had not only learned a tremendous amount about blocking doing St. Elsa, which is an actor heavy show and not a shot gorgeous show and also how to do romantic comedy and blend comedy and drama in a sophisticated way on moonlighting. I no longer was being offered um police academy you know what i mean yeah i had gone beyond that yeah and so you learn i learned how to take the tools that you're given and make it a personal stamp and doing it all these different ways all of a sudden i'm directing pilots and i'm helping create shows so that's the arc of the television you know for me and is that when the executive producing started yeah yeah, I realized that being a producer director and working on a show where you really care about the characters and being part of that was a great goal to have. And um, I did a bunch of pilots. And then when um, uh, I had done The Temptations, which was a big deal, I had a period where I did a bunch of television movies. And they're not known, but I really liked them. I did. My favorite one, aside from Temptations, is Elvis meets Nixon. I, I, yeah, I'd like to see that if that's available. I, I, I'm going to have to hunt it down on YouTube. Yeah, that's on uh, Prime Video. Oh, great! And 
it's the story of that weekend but it's extremely funny mm -hmm. and i did something when i read that script that i have never done before okay so my agent sends me this going to go does the world really need another movie about elvis you know <laughs> and i'm reading it and it's so funny and elvis is what he probably was like a big baby right his life was protected he didn't know anything he doesn't even carry a wallet right you know? no one there to tell him don't eat that fried peanut butter sandwich and all that yes all that's in there and nixon is a paranoid lunatic <laughs> And they were balanced and they were coming together. So I'm reading this command. This is pretty good. So there's a scene on the airplane when Elvis is flying now to Los Angeles because he's run away from home, essentially. And he has nothing to do over the weekend and he can't be alone in a hotel room. So he flies on the airplane and he's it's the middle of the night and him and this kid are sitting side by side and they just had some ice cream. And so they're talking and. The kid says, I really miss my mom. You know, he's traveling on. And Elvis looks at him and goes, me too. Want to get some more ice cream? <laughs> <laughs> and I put that down. I called my agent. I'm doing this. I yeah. don't even need to finish it. And yeah. it was a great experience. It was a great experience. And the movie I did with Frank Sinatra was a lot of fun. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, you are one of the few people who got Frank Sinatra to do more than one take. Yes, I am the only person in in, in movie history, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's that's right. Who have yeah. worked with Frank Sinatra and Joey Ramone. That is <laughs> that's very true. That covered, right? <laughs> and Lou Reed. And Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. And Iggy. Oh, that's right. and remind me, what you worked with Iggy on Iggy was on uh uh Shannon's Deal T V series. Oh, okay. Yeah. That episode had Iggy david crosby and tanya tucker so it was like oh. the drug damage people <laughs> oh my god that's amazing wow and the music the score was done by winton marsalis it was a really good show and john sales wrote it oh my god that yeah. that's something that now, uh, that's something you can't find right out on the i don't think so i was like 89 we did about 10 12 episodes well, I'm going to do another look for that because that sounds fascinating. Because again, oh, really? and by the way, lest I uh, neglect to mention this, when you mentioned earlier about, okay, now these two films are there and they're of a piece and people can see there's a sensibility, there's a thing. Uh, that's always been ob obvious to me as a fan as well. So I just wanted okay. to tell you that and how much I've appreciated your work and uh, how much it, uh, I guess, shaped my aesthetic as well. Because again, I saw Rock and Roll High School so young and everything. And then the delight of finding Get Crazy and going, there's more of this stuff. This is wonderful. But I didn't, I kind of went away from the crazy style. Yeah, but still, someone's aesthetic. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. like Altman can make a movie about uh, two different subjects. You can still tell it's an Altman movie. So you're getting that sort of yes. thing going on. And I, and I was really glad to return to that all-out comic world for the Netflix show that I did about three years ago. Series of Unfortunate Events? That's it. Yeah. That, those two episodes are me within the bounds of what barry sonnenfeld and 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 them wanted just kicking kicking loose you know yeah. and just taking this crazy world which to me was like when you watch um abbott and costello meet frankenstein you know mm -hmm. or uh duck soup with the marx brothers and they were in fredonia where the fuck is fredonia <laughs> you know? 
that's what I was enjoyed doing. You know? Did you also have a, a love of comic books? I was curious about what started the process that led to Heroes. Um, I liked comic books as a kid. Mm -hmm. I, and I read a lot of them. I really did the, the DC comics and so forth. At a certain point in my early teen years, I switched over. I'd always been a big reader. I, I read actually every single book in my uh, public school library. <laughs> and, and then in high school, I was excited by what I read, you know, and the teacher had turned me on to Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. And I got in a lot of battles with the school about what I was allowed to read and not, or what was in life not. So somewhere along the way, the comic books disappeared until I walked into a head shop in 1968 and saw Zap Comics number one. Oh, sure. And I go, what the? And I bought that. And then, so the comic books that I like are the, are the, the, the ones with uh, Harvey P. Carr's comics and, and Zap Comics. And I loved all the feminist uh, comedy ones. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't a comic book person going into heroes and i think that that was why heroes was so good in the first season because the guy who created it wasn't a comic book person sure and we lost our mojo because we added all these writers who loved comic books and that's who you would normally do so we threw the whole thing in that in that direction and that's one of the reasons we got lost at the end of the first season that's not to say that with every episode was a fabulous idea. That mm -hmm. first season was as exciting and amazing, you know, experience. And it's one of the only times in my entire life I've handed in an episode of anything or mm -hmm. film and the executives look at it and go, um, I've got no notes. <laughs> That, with the okay. note process, uh, I'm sure you have to be a nerd to a certain point of just being like, here's the part where they're going to tell me a bunch of dumb stuff and I'm going to pretend yeah. that I'm taking it on board and that's a great idea. Thanks so much. And then you just know that you're going well, to. It's one of the reasons I don't want to direct anymore because the last 10 or 15 years, I've gotten so many terrible notes and have had to listen to so many people and the process of interference mm -hmm. because I haven't done a giant hit show in that time. Okay, just done okay shows. Um, I just don't want to do it anymore. I just can't listen to them, you know. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing trailers from hell because I can say anything I want. And I've also been doing my own autobiography, you know, talking to the camera, which is on my Facebook page. And I just come up and tell the stories and do what I want. And it's very, very um, gratifying. And it's one of the reasons I love teaching at the American Film Institute. Because having been through the hell of note-taking the wrong way, I have created the note-taking as a combination of what I think it should be, creating a safe space to give notes, the way Roger Corman taught me, you know, and the way Marty Scorsese taught me at NYU. So I put them all together and I'm reliving it for my students. They don't quite know how it works but they get it yeah, yeah i'm sure I'm, yeah i think the, i can imagine you being a terrific teacher because your enthusiasm and also your um yeah your uh 
ability with people. The other thing about heroes I wanted to mention is, and also saying elsewhere, is it must have been nice to reunite with people that were in Get Crazy in these other oh, yeah. contexts. Yeah. yeah, that was a great thing about saying elsewhere. And also, uh, in the, the film I did called Shake, Rattle, and Rock, which is, uh, again, not that well known, but Renee Zellweger is in it. And it's the prequel to Rock and Roll High School. And it was a series of movies where they took all these AIP teen movies from the 50s that they mm -hmm. own the rights to. And they gave it to a bunch of directors who loved this stuff and said, pick one, do whatever you want. It can cost more than 1.4 million. And that means about nine days of shooting. <laughs> so I decided to do the prequel to Rock and Roll High School. And I cast called in every favor of everybody I'd ever done a TV series with. And the mothers in it are PJ Souls and Day Young from Rock and Roll High School, because now they're in their 40s. I just watched a like a chiller convention or something panel with uh, uh -huh. Day, PJ Souls, and Mary Warnoff, and they spent a good couple minutes talking about how much they loved doing that picture, Shake Rattle. Oh, Long. good. Yeah. 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 yeah, Mary is a continuation of the of the um, horrible principle, but now she's into book burning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to tape an episode with her because uh, she has no problem speaking her mind about anyone or anything. <laughs> oh, she's fantastic. She's a great woman. Well, there was a question about the Elvis Costello video I wanted to check. Yeah. Are you the person, do you remember that uh, according to Elvis Costello's liner notes, the CBS record executive implored, please just try to make him look handsome? Yes. <laughs> yeah. They, they make him look handsome, make him look sexy. <laughs> Which is why we came up with Win a Date with Elvis. It's a very charming video, and yeah. uh, especially yeah. with the two of them. And I have to work with Ed Lackman, who's the DP, who's the brilliant DP, you know. So. It's got a really like fun look. And also, you know, the Dawkins video is really, really cool. I gotta say. <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, you know, there's what? a part of me. There's a part of me that I just have no control over. Okay, and so <laughs> we get hired to do this video for Dokken, you know, and they want a metal video like everyone else is doing, and I thought that's what I was giving them, and it's clearly a satire of them. Yeah, but it makes them look like they're in on the joke. Right, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. I, and it hadn't occurred to me until I was uh, I was up in Canada doing a, a series that actually I enjoyed doing called Hellcats. And we had a local music guy who was doing, and we were recording on a Saturday some song for the show. And uh, he says, you know, you're really good. Have you ever done any videos? And I said, oh, yeah, I did Mick Jagger and Bette Midler. And, and I did um, this metal band that you probably never heard of. He goes, oh, I grew up on metal. What band? I go, Dokken. Dokken. I love Dokken. Really? Have you ever seen Breaking the Chains? You did Breaking the Chains. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I saw it again. And I went, holy shit. I took the piss out of these guys. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's it's great. It's really good. I mean, the look. The cameraman is Jan Debon. Really terrific. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm familiar with uh, Jan Debon. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's amazing. And uh, I, I know we got to wrap up in a minute, but you did just mention the Beast of Burden video, which is another favorite of mine. I love yes. the, the, the tone of it's so great. And that minute before the song starts yes. is fantastic. That really came out exactly like it was imagined. You know, Bet was just trying, couldn't decide what kind of video she was going to do. 
you know, because it was wide open. And somehow or other, Terry Schwartz, who was my producer, who was my first AD on Hollywood Boulevard and production manager, mm -hmm. then went on and produced movies for Bette Midler, Beaches, oh, yeah. Barbara Streisand, and Sister Act, and then became the dean of UCLA Film School. So we all started at Corman together. She was my producer on this. So we got the job. And basically, I said, you know, you got Mick Jagger. She said, I got one Mick Jagger. I said, then the whole thing is this. You and Mick try to outdo each other. Let's just do a, a concert video where you try to upstage him. And we'll see the chemistry. And so Mick was supposed to. It was a little, she didn't even, she was intimidated by him too. And you know, I've got every stone. Does that surprise you that I have every stone record? <laughs> I'm very shocked. I'm glad I'm sitting down because quite frankly, Alan. Uh, yeah. Well, and also there's some people that just, they, no matter how many people you've seen, you've hung out with the dead, whatever, there's still some people that will just kind of make you go, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. And so I hardly spoke to him the first day. And now the second day, we have to get him out by 7 o'clock, 6.30 or 7, because he's got a, a Christmas party at his house. <laughs> so we start, and we do one of the big takes, you know. And I said, okay, cut. Let's print that, and let's move on to this thing. He goes, you're not going to shoot more close-up? I said, no, no, the whole thing is the chemistry between the two of you. That's what I'm after. And if we get it on a take, let's just keep going. We'll get the whole energy. And he goes, if you're going to do that, I'll stay till seven. Okay. And that's what it was like. Yeah. And so at a certain point, I told the crowd, if Mick was in the bathroom, I said, all right, on this one, whatever Bet does, I want you to go nuts and make Mick work for it. <laughs> And that's when they're throwing <laughs> their coats down and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And it's also yeah. got in it, if, if you know, if I can save the stuff that I did that I don't think worked, there's a shot in there where Bet is on the shoulders of all these people and Mick is on the ground dancing, and she reaches down and pulls him up on these people's shoulders. And the cameraman is Andre Barkoziak, who shot all these Sidney Lumet movies and all this stuff. And... He just signaled the crane at the right second, and it just booms up with him. And every time I see that, I go, that's about as good as I can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fantastic in all ways because it's very fun. It gets the spirit yeah. of the song. You get the emotion of the song, but you still have like a, a sort of a laugh as, at the yes. same time. Yeah, and I got to actually ended up at Mick's house in the kitchen with him. <laughs> and, that, and Peter Wolf of Jay Giles. From my hometown of Boston, yeah. And Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone, we were there till four in the morning eating leftovers from the party and drinking red wine. It was great. It sounds like an uh, appropriate conclusion to the evening and I possibly, yeah. uh, and I think a, a terrific conclusion to this chat, uh, I, which I want to thank you for, Alan. I've had a wonderful time. You're welcome. And I've been a fan of yours for many years, so it was uh, well, lovely to meet you, you also at, at New Beverly and to see your film with you there. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And good luck with the podcast. I can't wait to hear it. And this upcoming Movie Club Monday on December 4th, the Craig and Friends Movie Club Mondays brings you the Crimes of Passion Movie Club. Yes, that's right. The Ken Russell classic starring none other than Kathleen Turner and Anthony Perkins is discussed in great depth by myself and the Ken Russell expert, the wonderful, the delightful, charming, and incredibly knowledgeable Gala Avery. 
And now that this episode's over, hustle on over to The Gala Show, because you know what? You deserve a break today. And then after you listen to the new episode featuring none other than myself, listen to all the other incredible guests. Mick Garris, Michelle Brooks, Larry Karazuski, Josh Miller, Eli Roth, and me. And of course, hop on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends and get ready for the wave of stuff I don't want to even tell you about yet because it's too intense. <laughs>